0: We want to be involved with people that are, and companies that their horizon is forever. And that's not what private equity does. Their horizon as a company is forever, but their product is flipping these companies. And in many, many, many cases, in the process of doing that, they damage the, the very thing that makes these companies great.
1: Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker Bryce Hoffman and former RAF Wing Commander and business agility coach Marcus Dimbleby.
2: Hello there, and welcome to another episode of The
3: Thinking Leader. Bryce, good day, my friend. Who do we have with us this week? Oh, I'm so excited. Today, we have Ron Boer. Ron is a strategic advisor, but more importantly, he is a recovering CEO, <laughs> um, serving as as CEO for, for Barnes & Noble's Brookstone. Sears Canada, and he's also been a senior executive with Sony Electronics, Best Buy, and other companies. He coaches C-suite executives. He teaches at Columbia Business University, Columbia University Business School. So many exciting things to talk about, Ron. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to
0: see you guys. Thanks, and I'm looking forward to uh, having some fun. Their conversation today. I am too. You know, and
3: and you know, when you look at your, your your bio Ron, you've you've been in senior positions at so many different companies in so many different industries, and you know now you're you're sharing what you know with, with senior executives at other companies in other industries, and I I'm just curious, what have you come to find? Are the qualities or the skills that are most essential for successful leaders? To have and to cultivate.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I I'm, I do a combination of advisory work and innovation work today, and um, most of that work ends up in some kind of leadership coaching conversation, right? Or even in just an engagement. It's like hire me yeah. as a hire me. They hire me as a coach, and um, you know, I, and I, I don't do behavioral stuff, right? I don't do the kind of thing like goes oh, somebody acted badly. At, you know, a company party and they have to be talked to. That's not what I do. I do kind of like how to to be a better leader.
3: We wouldn't have you on the show
0: if that (laughs) was (laughs) you. But but I really started, as I've started to think about this over the years, I've kind of broken it down into like three big buckets. And it really starts with kind of health. And and this is the one that kind of surprises me. People like, you know, having, having your kind of, mental emotional and physical health in order as a leader having your family situation healthy and then your team situation healthy and you know, people talk about it as kind of like being safe today and things like that it's, it's not where i'm going i'm really going in how does a team dynamics work together and that then that leads to kind of like what are you good at and how do you truly create like your own personal content because so much, so much of leadership, and you know, you mentioned Columbia Business School, and and I do occasionally teach there with Rita McGrath, and and I uh, and I did go there, but so much of business school when I went to business school was about kind of the mechanics of this is what a balance sheet looks like, and this is how mm-hmm. you do accounting, and mm-hmm. this, this is what tax law is, and all of those kind of things. But the value is really created in differential content, right? So, right, if you're so. I, I've really found in my career where I did my absolute best work is when I had my kind of act together, kind of personally, emotionally, my family situation was solid. My team was solid. Then we start to create really great stuff. And, and that stuff is not, you know, optimization, it's creation. It's doing things differently. It's mm-hmm. innovative. And, you know, and then once, once that's together, you can start to think about growth and impact. Right. Um, But, a lot of times when I'm actually doing kind of leadership coaching slash development, and I have a, I have a little worksheet that I give. I'm again, I'm not one of those people, but I have a little worksheet that I give people and say like, what's your personal health plan and what's your family health plan. And it's just amazing. Or I have at least two leaders now that I'm having advisory slash coaching relationships with. And you say like, well, what are you doing to help your family health and and the number one thing that both of them were doing was putting cell phones away at dinner. Oh, so yeah. I mean, literally, like, okay, I'm actually talking to my family again, right? And you're – because when you say to somebody, if like, you're holding this thing up, you're not engaged with me as a person. You're certainly not – and it's – you want to talk about being offensive to the family, right? <laughs> you know, so to me it's like get your yourself – Mentally, emotionally, physically kind of ready to do the job because they're big, tough jobs. Get your family in the right place and then go.
3: That's so interesting to hear you say that because, you know, you know, my, my mentor, Alan Mulally, preaches this too. And, you know, he, he used to be home at 6.30 every night. Yeah. You know, seven at the latest. Now, he was always the first person at the office in the morning, you know. Well before the sun rose, but you know a lot of people thought you know particularly when Ford was was fighting for its life and stuff that oh he you know you must be working you know twenty hour days and stuff and he said no he said that's that's not that's not my role as, as the leader I've got to be able to show up the next day too and he 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 talked to me about how important this is and it's he said it's something that so many executives overlook is is that if you can't bring your best self as a leader every day. You're letting your team down. You're letting your company down. And it's not worth, you know, burning yourself out to do that. And in fact, there's one day where he showed up in the entire time where he was CEO. um, He was talking about this when he was on our podcast, actually, um, where he looked haggard and and people were terrified because he'd been so together and like, oh, my gosh, you know, we must really be falling apart now. (laughs) He said, no, he said, he said, my my daughter I, my daughters begged me to, to take them to a Lady Gaga concert last night. <laughs> 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 and he said I was uh, you know in the, out Taw there with that. the young But you know you contrast that another CEO that I worked closely with around the same time was Sergio mm. um, who was famously the CEO of. I don't think I could list every company simultaneously: Chrysler, Fiat, Ferrari, that, Case right. New Holland. Uh, you know um, about. 10 different companies. And he worked 20, 22 hours a day. First time I met Sergio, to your point, he had over half a dozen Blackberries. Not, I mean, he, he sat down, and he put them out on the table in front of him before we started talking. And I said, What do you need half a dozen Blackberries for? I think he had seven or eight, actually. And he says, Well, you know, this one's for Ferrari, this one's for Fiat, this one's for Chrysler. And he was micromanaging everything. And he was an amazing leader. But you know what? He had a heart attack and died in the midst of, you know, this massive business turnaround that he was trying to lead, and it all fell apart. Yeah, he killed That's
2: himself with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: and it's um, you know I've seen that um, one of the one of the individuals I'm coaching that just had a turnover of his boss, and his boss was one of those who fam- famously was always doing kind of this when you were talking to him, and uh, I, I had a conversation with this gentleman at one point and you know, they had just made a a, a change in a, a young leader's assignment. So this, this young leader, this is, these are the things that leaders do that you just in my head, I, my head explodes. They, they take this young superstar, promote him into a job. that's a little bit different job. He was in kind of a, uh, development and they put him into kind of an innovation role. And they give him this project and they say, this project can never fail. It is the, it's just on autopilot and the board loves it. And the CEO loves it and it's go, go, go. And you know, this is going to be great for you and your career. He gets going in the project. He moves his family. He has a new child goes out on vacation while he's on vacation. They cancel the project and um, they, Never really said a word to him. He basically got a note saying, hey, your project. And he's a remote worker, too, which don't get me started on some of this remote work stuff. But (laughs) he was a remote worker, so he's abandoned out in the middle of the hinterlands. And so I was calling him for a little check-in because I was advising them on some of the work they're doing. He goes, I don't know if you heard, but, you know, I I don't have a project. I think I've been fired. I don't know. (laughs) And so I said, don't worry, I'm going to see this gentleman the next day and I'm sitting there and I'm like, um, what, you know, do you, do you realize you fired so-and-so? He goes, he goes, what do you mean? I go, well, he thinks he's fired. Like nobody's talked to him. His projects disappeared. And of course, in, the, in this case, he did do it in the middle of the meeting. He sends him a text. He goes, Oh, I'm going to talk to him tonight. You know, but this distracted leadership where he's so busy micromanaging everything else, he can't manage what I would call the, the health of his organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the health, of the the health is so
2: important, isn't it? And, the, health, yeah. the health of your organization and your people yeah. has to be, for, and I did a, a comment on this on LinkedIn today, and if, if you're a leader today and you're not putting your people first, if you're not enabling the environment for your people to grow within, to feel secure, to feel challenged appropriately, and to be able to have absolute clarity on what's going on, then to me, you're failing as a leader in this day and age where things are so complex and, as you said, it's moving at such a pace. People need that assurance that somebody upstairs is looking out for them, just yeah. as you know you expect your parents to as a youngster. And yeah. I think that's one of the biggest shifts that leaders have failed to come to grasp with, with you know, over the last few years. And as you said, they're too busy wrapped up in their own little worlds and mobile phones and cells that, and they're not focusing where they should be.
0: Yeah, and it, and um, it's un, unbelievably common now. Now, thankfully, this gentleman moved on literally just a couple months later. But the damage he did to this young leader um, is is I, I don't know if it's a repairable, but it's it's significant. I mean, imagine that you're 31 yeah. years old, you got two kids, you just moved for this company, and all of a sudden, bang, it's gone, and there's nobody on the phone going, "Hey, it's gone. Here's what we're gonna do." So. I kind of stepped in as kind of the proxy leader and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a post-mortem on what you did, what went really well, what went badly. You and I are going to have some sessions where you're going to go in the bathroom, look in the mirror and go honestly to yourself. I did this really badly and I should have done that differently. You know, that stuff we're not writing down, but you're going to learn from it. <laughs> um, and uh, at the end of the day, you know, the this, this story, um, unfortunately, did not end well even in the long term because this gentleman left the company. So here they had a rising star They put him in this new job that was supposed to be this magical thing for his, himself, his career, the company. And the net result is the project's gone and he's gone. Now think of the investment here that's just right down the drain. It's huge. But
2: think of the failing there again. And when we hear this so much, I saw it in the military, we see it in every walk of industry where that, that awful, the rising star, the A player, yeah. they're good at their job. And then they move them into these positions that are nothing to do with what they've done. It's that Peter Principle concept, isn't it? Where, you know, and you drop these poor individuals in there without any training. You know, the lack of quality management and leadership training that that doesn't exist out there today. You know, it's some online digital click click through course or a one yeah. day away a year, and then you put these individuals in there who are highly capable, and therefore it's an even bigger and harder fall for them yeah. when they do fall off that pedestal because they're not in their comfort zone anymore. They're not in the thing that they were doing well and they've been abandoned almost as we often see out in the yeah. wild with something that they've not touched before.
3: Well, and they also, you don't give them space to fail. I'll tell you, I, I just, I want to share a quote that I just, I, I was so impressed with this. I, I was watching a documentary on, on Nicky Lauda and uh, I, I wrote this down because this is an amazing quote. Um, Nikki, probably one of the greatest drivers in history said, winning is one thing, but out of losing, I always learned more. Yeah. And you know, I, I wrote that down because that's so true in business too. It's so true in everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And 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 as you talk, Ron, you know, I'm thinking that's the thing is so few organizations give room for their these rock stars, these rising stars, to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I was a, well, first of all, I'm a huge Nicky fan. He passed away last year. Yeah, and uh, he's a great example of somebody I think that that grew beyond their initial course. So initially Mm -hmm. he's a great race car driver and he had that horrific crash and a week later he's coming back from it. I know. So he finishes his race career and his second career I think was more successful than his first career working with Mercedes-Benz and he created, helped create that Mercedes-Benz team that just dominated the sport. I mean, they were the New England Patriots of F1 racing for the last 10 years. Just incredible what he did almost to the side as kind of this senior leader, calming hand on the back of, of of that team. Anyways, yeah. when I was a young leader at, at Sony, um, first of all, they they actually had a training program for leaders, you know, Sony Management 101 and Management 102, and was Sony US, a so very US oriented. And when I got my first big promotion there, I was a very young guy. I was that rising star and they didn't, Put me, they didn't put me in a combat zone with with a no lose scenario. They put me in the worst business in the company. And, and you know, I I ran I ran the New England region. I was a regional vice president salesperson. I ran the New England region, and it was right after you know Digital had gone bankrupt, and you know unemployment in New England was like thirteen percent, and they're like you can't screw this up. So go ahead, have a good time. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's like a sandbox, that. right? It's like it's a sandbox. Like, it's, it's like a sandbox. So we had the worst years, 13 regions in the country. We were like number 15 out of 13. And, you know, it was, a, it was, I was telling somebody this story yesterday. It was a group of, of young guys and you know, it was all guys at that, at, at that time in the office and one really senior guy, this crusty old guy named Bob Clark, who if you ever seen the fisherman Lozenger box, he's that oh yeah, yeah. He's, he's that guy. guy. He's Bob, Bob Clark from Boston. Anyhow, he was <laughs> he was the senior guy who didn't let us do anything really stupid. But we like completely changed the way we operated the business. We innovated, we made a lot of mistakes, and that region went from the worst in the country to the best in the country. And everybody in that region, people in that region, guy that worked for me, guy named Jay Vanderbury became president of the company. He replaced me when I left. Um, a guy named Steve Haber became a president of an operating group, a guy named Steve Tate became a head of strategic planning, you know, on you know, Paul Spitali became a you know executive vice president of the company. And we were just young guys that were given an opportunity to kind of learn and grow in a safe place. And mm-hmm. it was like you can't screw this up, you can't make a huge mistake and it turned into something wonderful. That's an amazing opportunity. It was unbelievable. And, and I also along the way had, I also had that mentor, like you have Alan and probably other people in your life I had this guy named Mike London, who happened to be um, my biggest customer. So it was really interesting. I went up there as like a 27 year old, you know, I was, a, I was 27. So of course I knew everything in the world. Um, you know, you're a genius when you're 27 and, and one of the things I really need leader is the older I get the dumber I get I wish <laughs> so anyway so my boss at that point was a guy named Tony Piazza and he had run that region before and he had become a very senior guy in the company and he went out to introduce me to my biggest company cu- customer the company called Leachmere I don't know if you ever heard of Leachmere mm. but back in the day Leachmere was the place in Boston the shop general merchandiser Hard goods, you know, everything from, you know, kitchen appliances, electronics, that kind of stuff. And um, they were bought by Montgomery Wards who promptly destroyed the business. But anyways, um, (laughs) some some companies have innate skills. That was one of theirs. Anyways, um, he introduces me to this guy, Mike. And he goes, Mike, uh, this is Ron. He's the new regional vice president. Uh, Do me a favor and teach him the business. And I remember looking at him and going, thinking to myself, are, are you out of your mind? You just told my biggest customer, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. and But what he, knew, he knew two things. One, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and two, he knew that Mike was the kind of person that would, would do that. He would adopt me. And he would put his arm behind, around my back and teach me, and at the same time be a tough customer. Mm-hmm. And Mike used to call me. I would, I would drive to the office back in the day in the office, you know, 7.30 in the morning at 8 o'clock every Monday morning, my phone would ring, no caller ID. I'd go, good morning, Mike, how are you? And he would say, hey, do you see what Mitsubishi did this past weekend? Do you see what this retailer did this past weekend? And Mm -hmm. he was teaching me the business. And to this day, he's a great mentor. And there's a great story about um, he eventually became the chief merchant at Best Buy.
3: Oh, interesting! This is, a
0: great, this is to, to this day, this is one of the greatest servant leadership lessons I've I've ever seen. I was president of Sony Sales at the time, so okay. he became chief merchant at the biggest electronics retailer in the world, and I was the head of sales at the biggest electronics manufacturer in the world, and we're still very close friends, and we're working together. And uh, one day, I decided I was going to leave Sony. And um, I I called him up and I said, hey, Mike, I'm I'm moving on. And uh, I know you know everybody in the industry and the manufacturing side. If there's a place that maybe it's Samsung or maybe it's, you know, Hewlett Packard or whatever, if you could make an introduction, that would be great. And he said, "Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. You're going to come to work at Best Buy. Hmm. I said, said, Mike, I I don't know anything about retail, like nothing. And he goes, no, you actually would be a great retailer. Like your background, the things you've done, and a couple of days later, he flew out to New York with Brad Anderson, who was the CEO. You, Bryce, do you know you know Brad?
3: I have not met him, but I've seen him speak before. Yeah, one of the yeah,
0: great yeah. servant leaders of all time. Yeah, is the fantastic CEO, and uh, flew out. We met with Brad. And Brad had an apartment at the Trump Tower, which I don't know if he still has. And he was actually, he, he's the son of a Lutheran mis- minister, actually kind of embarrassed that he had this beautiful apartment. <laughs> <I can't imagine. laughs> he sat on this horrible Italian sofa, which was just the worst sofa in the world, but it looked really, really, really Italian. And, um, and Brad said to me, come to work at Best Buy. And I said, well, what would the job be? And he said, well, I, I, I don't have a job for you, but I'd make you an executive vice president. And I said, well, um, I'm not real good at not having a job. So, but th- so thank you very much. I appreciate that. But, you know, if you can figure it out, let me know. So he turned to Mike. He goes, Mike, your job is to find Ron a job. So Mike, same routine. Once a week, he'd call me. And go, Hey, how you doing? How's your job search going? Here's what we're thinking at Best Buy. And finally, one day he called me and he said, Ron, I figured out your job. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's mine. Wow. And, I, and I, I still get emotional kind of thinking about this. And I said, Mike, this is the only job you ever wanted in your life. And he goes, yeah, but the world is changing so fast. And I can't do the job. Wow. And a, a few months before, we had met in Yokohama, Japan, at an international conference. And he had come to my room, in my suite. I was the president of Sony at the time. He sat on my sofa, and he said, listen, Ronnie. he goes, we have these kids running around the building from McKinsey, and they have these binders, and they talk about things that I don't understand. Uh, I don't know what to do. We love those people. And I said, Mike, first thing you do is go go hire yourself one of those kids, right? So have one of those guys that can talk to those guys and distract them. And he had a lot of stress about this. And here was a guy who the only job he ever wanted in his life, the job he wanted from the time he started in the industry was the job he had but he knew he couldn't do it the way it needed to get done and he knew his time was done and he knew that i would probably as it turns out i think i did a good job i'd probably do a good job at it and to me it was it was the greatest leadership moment i've ever seen in my life just amazing wow and mike and mike you know was at best buy as long as he wanted to be there and then he eventually retired. Um but uh, and that's yeah. and that
2: stemmed from that first relationship contact that you had with your boss asking him to teach you the business. You know, what he's seeing you exactly, throughout and he, that yes. progression.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly where that came from. And and it turned out that I wasn't as big an idiot because I had yeah. I had Mike as a mentor pretty much my entire yeah. career. Um so pretty amazing. Beautiful. And
3: what a self aware leader though, too. I mean, to to recognize that 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 the quality, the, the, the experience and the expertise that he had wasn't what was needed right now.
0: Yeah, and what, what they needed at the time was somebody who knew about the new technologies and knew some of the new business models. And um, yeah, I mean, just deeply personally insightful and personally confident that, you know, I'll be okay. And, and, the, and because he was an owner, he had an owner's mentality in Best Buy, he knew that they needed a different perspective
3: it's so rare, you know, I, you see, there's so many cautionary tales in, in business history and political history as well of leaders who, who outlive their, their, their greatness. Yeah. And, and they don't know when to, they don't know when the time comes to let go and, and let somebody else take over. And that's why I think, you know, I, I, we, in the U S, you know, George Washington has almost become like a cartoon character. Mm-hmm. So that it's hard for people to take him seriously anymore, um, but if you look at his life historically, I mean, it, it's an amazing model of leadership. Yeah. How many people could just walk away from being the head of state, and not yeah. just walk away? He walked away, and he never, never spoke about politics again. And for the rest of his life, people came to Mount Vernon to ask him to intervene on things and stuff, and he wouldn't do it. He said, "I'm done. I did my. Yeah. I've, I've given what I had, and it." It's a model that is very rare and that uh, hasn't much been followed since. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's, I honestly don't know if I could do it. Honestly, it's, it's such a hard thing to do as a human being because you, you spend your life trying to achieve this goal. Now you're there and the thing has passed you by or it's not, it's not the right moment. Right. And how many people have the courage to look in the mirror and go.
2: Yeah. But I I think is, is it, there's multiple options to this, isn't it? We can unpick it. It's do people just put their head in the sand, realize they can't do it, but carry on as Bryce said, they hang on there and keep going, mm-hmm. which is dangerous. Or do you have that humility where you say, look, I don't know mm-hmm. how to do this. And you search for that younger individual to help yeah. you out, or you go and read up. And we, we had Mick Paisley on last year, and he was saying it, and he's a chief security and resilience officer. And he said he spends 60 to 90 minutes every day reading up he said, because I have to. And he's got a young bunch of tech super geniuses working for him. He said, I have to keep ahead of the game just to keep on par with them. Yeah. And then you've got the imposter syndrome where people are trying to wing it and pretend they know what's going on. So you've got sort of three variations of different leadership styles yeah. that you've got to try and assess and understand if you're going in to help them and work out where they're at to help them as well. Because obviously, it, it, going back to that first comment of your, your personal health when you're dealing with that sort of pressure, it's what kills people
0: yeah and and not having a plan right so not having the ability to i talk about my current career as ron 3.0 yeah. <laughs> not having the, the ability to go i could go do something else and yeah right and we would be fine and you know i you know I, I left the private equity turnaround kind of phase of my career a few years ago never really looked back because mm-hmm. it was like you know a lot of things about that kind of business where you know, some of it went really, really well, some were really, really bad, but all of it was gun to your head kind of management. It's like, I, it's unhealthy. You just can't continue to do that. And, and finding something else, you know, I, I kind of groped around, but I, I knew I'd find something and, you know, here I am. Like, so, you know, still creating a little bit of value here and there and enjoying it. How do myself. you feel now though? How do you uh, feel? I, How's the difference how between that? And that? Felt when I was, <laughs> yeah. you know, dealing with, you know, you um, know the the private equity, you know, amphibians and crocodiles, you know, just yeah. it's a, it's a different lifestyle. It takes totally, and, it's and that all of that learning has really helped me kind of get to where I am today, where I think I can I can pay some of that forward uh, with some of these younger leaders. Um, and you know, and Mike was a, a fantastic lesson, and and that, and you know, my first unbelievable. First of many, he had many of those lessons to me throughout my life. Um, you know, uh, that kind of leadership, your point, Marcus, is it's almost non-existent. And, and, and the George Washington example I love as well, Bryce, I mean, I, I have a couple of, I'm not involved in politics at all, but I have a couple of friends that are, you know, have political offices, local political offices. And we talk about, you know, national politics. And we have this whole older guard that's in there now. And I just know, I mean, it's not all aging, but most of them are aging. It's like. They all just need to go away, they just all need to go away. And it's so obvious to anybody that's on the outside looking. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, socialist, liberal, lunatic, whatever the heck you are. If you look at this and think this is good, there's something wrong, right? These people have to go away. It's not just in America. They've been doing it so long and they can't change. And they're just, to your point, Marcus, hanging on to the power. They just can't let go.
3: Well, yeah. you know, look at the look at the flip side of the Washington story. I mean, you know, there's a lot I admire about Winston Churchill, but he hung on as prime minister well past his ability to lead yeah. the UK, and he almost destroyed his legacy yeah. in the process.
0: Yeah, yeah. you got to know what you're good at and let go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe one of the greatest leaders of the last century, and he just couldn't let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean,
3: to the point that he probably you know was was starting to have age related impairment, and his mm-hmm. staff knew it and. Couldn't talk him out of it. well I let's take a break here. This has been such an interesting conversation. when we come back, I want to talk about some of those things that you share with young leaders about how to cultivate this sort of resilience. We'll get into that. Stay tuned. If you like what you've been hearing in this episode and you want to learn more about red team thinking or you want to learn how to become a red team coach a red team thinker, a red team practitioner, go to our website redteamthinking.com and register for our free red team coaching boot camp. Like I said, it's absolutely free. It's available in last half of February, first half of March. Go there, check it out. Seats are limited. Love to see you in the course. Welcome back. So Ron, you know, I, I'm I'm curious. We were talking during the break about about teaching leadership. And, and you made a, a real interesting observation that I totally agree with, which is that you can't really teach leadership in business school. Um, you want to unpack that a little bit?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's so much of leadership. I mean, you, you go to business school and they, they teach you about, you know, T accounts and where, where, the, where the numbers go on the balance sheet. It's, it's just, a, it's, to me, it's really impossible to, to teach people how to behave and, and how to, truly understand who they are as a person and what their values are and and use those values to get things done. I'll give you a great example. When I was going to Columbia business school, um, one of the young ladies there was a vice president of ethics for Enron. Mm. This poor young lady, uh, we, have, we have an anniversary meeting, anniversary coming up in a, in a, few, year, in a few months in New York where I'm going to see her again. I haven't seen her in a few years. She had taken a job with F- Enron as like a VP of ethics and compliance about four months before they went belly up, All right? And this happened right in the middle of our class long story on her, or the short story on her is it took her like a year to get another job because it literally had this four-month period where it said Enron on her her, uh, resume. So we were, the the students said, you know, listen, we want to, you know, have an ethics course included in our curriculum here in the business school. And um, the school said at that point, said, well, we don't have an ethics course in the business school. That's Mm -hmm. in the law school. And, (laughs) We, so the obvious question was like, then what? Do you, then what? What is ethics? And ethics was defined at that time as if you you just obey the law. That that was the total definition in Columbia Business School is ethics is you you obey the law. And we occasionally would have guest speakers come in. We had this one lady who ran a desk at one of the big trading houses. I don't even know who it was. And we we got into this whole the whole concept of kind of um, Asymmetry of information, and her answer was, well, it's just buyer beware. If we have information they don't have, you know, we get a trading advantage from it, and we make money, and they lose money. That's just the way it is. And I can tell you, the class exploded. Like literally, people were like out of their minds. Like, and I said, I can't even believe you're here. I can't believe you're allowed in this building to say you said to me, cheating's legal. Yeah, that's what you said and so anyhow now columbia business school now has an ethics class i have no idea what they teach because i haven't <laughs> gone to it but you know, leadership <laughs> is really it's, it's values based and then going back to brad anderson we talked briefly about before when i went to work at best buy he would talk a lot about servant leadership and he gave me gave me this book as you can see that
3: wow <laughs> so look at that taught these, taught I've leadership.
0: Yeah, yeah. and i've probably given away a thousand copies of this book. So he gave me this book, excellent book, which I actually read. And, and this is Autry's. And there's a couple people have written on the servant leadership, but there's a page in here that I've used with, with my, I, I've tried to live this, but the five ways of being uh, authentic, vulnerable, accepting, present, and the one that's really, really difficult, useful. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so when I'm talking to young leaders, the first thing I do is send them the book. Um, and then we, you know, authenticity, ethical, useful leadership. It's it's really rare, you know, that a you leader comes just... up and says, so I know, you know, when I was a CEO or a leader in a company and somebody came to me and I said, ask them a question that, and they said, I don't know. I knew I was on the right path. Yeah right because if they had the intestinal fortitude to say I don't know then you knew that okay now this person's being truthful with me Let, now we can now we can work on this
3: and more than truthful truthful I mean this is something you you're not getting to the core of what we preach and what we teach all the time which is that it's actually that's a that's a courageous leader that's a strong leader that can say yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. it's when 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 a, when a leader doesn't know and acts like they do, that's a weak leader. That's a that's an insecure leader, yeah. and you know that's so important for people to understand because people have got it in their head that it's not okay to not have all the answers if you're in charge, and they've gotten bad models. And you know, I I'm going to say one of them was Jack Welch. You know, was was, yeah. was a classic example to me of of, of where this bad. Type of leadership comes from is, is you don't have to come in with your guns blazing to every meeting, yeah. and blowing everything up and telling everyone what they don't know. Yeah. And this whole idea of seeking understanding before seeking to be understood, of asking questions is so important to real leadership.
2: Yeah. And the empowerment that gives to people, doesn't it? When you say that as a leader, if you go into your, your team and go, hey guys, uh, there's this problem, and you know what? I don't know, but I know yeah. how we find out you guys. You're the yeah. people who I know can come together because I can't do this. Uh, and the empowerment and the the gratitude and the engagement you get from people then stepping up, like, hey, the boss can't do this. We can do this. We can show him how good we are. We can show her how capable we are. And you just get such a different power curve tilt in that sort of dishevelment of before where they're just beaten down being told what to do. And then when, as Bryce said, when these leaders bullshit their people and give them the answers that they've made up, cause they do not say, I don't know. And then you get the ramifications of the wrong answer and people taking action on the wrong decision. That yeah. causes far more trouble than just saying, look guys, I don't know. Can yeah. somebody come either give me an answer or let's get together and work out the answers ourselves as a group, all of yeah. us, you know, together can do this and i think that's such a as you mentioned Brian it's such a hard hurdle for many leaders to get over and accept that but you can't you can't know everything in this day and age in this complex world we're in it is impossible for an individual let alone a c suite to know all the answers because it's just moving too quick it's too vast too complex but if you've got a large organization somebody in there somewhere will know or collectively with the right questions as you said Ron and the right level of challenge, they will come out with the right answers that you need.
0: Yeah, and in my experience, the the power of the collective is really strong. I think so many occasions I've been in these kind of situations where we didn't really know the answer, we had a piece of the answer, we thought we had a piece of the answer, and you work with it with a with a group, and at the end you come up with the answer, and nobody can really go, well, yeah. well, Marcus came up with that. We all yeah. kind of came up with it. It all kind of it all kind of builds on 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 each idea builds See on a new so
2: yeah.
0: life. It happens all the time when you just let people get into that um, mindset. And, you know, the work I do with, with Rita McGrath, a lot of it is around, around innovation and solving these really big, hairy problems at, you know, C-suite levels and, and very senior levels. And I very, very frequently will go to the whiteboard and write, I don't know. But that goes back to what you said earlier, doesn't it? The whole idea is you don't know. That's why you're doing innovation. And so many of these groups, are, and I, I say this to leaders all the time, you know, you're, you've been told your whole career, your job is to know. Your job is to be right. Your job is to win. The reason you got promoted is you knew yeah. and you won. For all those reasons. And that just keeps reinforcing that. You know, early in your career, it's like, you know, Bryce got promoted because he knew and he did this and he did this. And now you're in a position where you actually don't know. because You may not even, you know, Marcus, you mentioned the scope, but you, you've you got this incredible scope. I mean, I was a CEO and I had the IT department reporting to me. What the hell do I know about IT? Like nothing. <laughs> I, I know it's really expensive and scary, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But if you're pretending that you've got a lot of people, who you're in trouble. The other thing that you really, you know, the next step from I don't know is you're wrong. When you have an employee that will come into your office and close the door and go, I just want to tell you, you're wrong, and here's why. That's the next level up where they have the the courage that you've allowed them to say, you're wrong. Um, You know, one of one of my one of my best friends is. There's a guy, he's in, he's in marketing, and he, he said, I, I fell in love with you when I found out I could change your mind, right? So, you know, we're going down a path many, many, many times, and I'm going down the wrong path, and he'd give me an argument. I go, ah, oh, yeah, I guess I guess that was stupid. I'm going to go this way, <laughs> right? I'm going to go your way now. And the really great
3: leaders have always recognized this. You know, one of the things, I've shared this before, is, you know, Famously, Andrew Carnegie asked that his epitaph be, here lies a man who was wise enough to bring into his service men who knew more than he. Yeah, And, mm-hmm. and it goes back, before he said that, he, had, he was giving an interview to, I don't know if it was the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or what newspaper. And the reporter asked him, you know, Mr. Carnegie, you know, you're one of, you're the richest, I don't know if he's richest or one of the richest men in the world at the time. You, you've turned the steel industry upside down. What do you know about making steel that no one else did? He said, I don't know a damn thing about making steel. Yeah. I know how to surround myself with mm-hmm. people who know more than I do about making steel and listen to them.
2: Yeah.
0: I yeah. enable them. And there's another, there's an old phrase that A's hire A's and B's hire C's. <laughs> right. It, it, same same concept. A players yeah. always hire try to hire better, and B players tend to try to protect their position. You know, yeah. Um, I don't know. There's if you're a lot of say,
3: insecurity in uh, leadership.
2: So much, yeah, so much. And they fight so hard to get there, don't they? That's the thing. And then when they get there, they think they're, you know, the next contenders coming up behind them. So they try and do anything to stay there, rather yeah. than growing those leaders to be better. I said to people when I was working in the bank, I used to recruit people. And afterwards they said, how, how did you sort of apply your process when you were recruiting me? And I said, I look at you and I think, could I work for this young guy one day? Yeah. And I was like, what? I said, yeah, you just sat opposite me, 20 years younger. And I look at you and go, can I work for this guy one day? If you're yeah. as good as I think you are and as good as I'm going to make you, in 10 years from now, could you be my boss and would I be cool with that? And he was like, wow. I'm like, but that's what I want for you. That's what I'm, I'm hiring you for the skills you've got that I've got no idea about. But I'm also, I'm going to push you so hard and challenge you because you're so capable, you don't even realize it, that one day you're going to be up where you need to be. And that's what I want for you. And I'm cool with that. I don't see you as a threat, even if you were my boss in five years. And I think, as you said, Bryce, that's such a hard thing for many leaders because they see it as a competition rather than the way we get better and do things better in any walk of life, in any sector, is we do it together and you help people climb the ladders with you rather than you sit at the top swinging around like king kong you're not going to be there forever
3: but you can't the other thing you need and that's what i want to get back to is 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 this resilience that we were talking about earlier so ron when you're when you're working with leaders how do you help them cultivate that that personal health mental health resilience whatever you want to call it what are what is some of the advice that you give to leaders
0: yeah i mean i think um... One of the things I do talk about a lot is that in understanding the, the human condition, understanding who you are, and if you back all the way up, you know, there's, there's two big things that motivate all of us. It's, it's fear and it's food, right? And then um, it has... Maslow's hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to a talking to class yesterday about this, and it's like, if you understand where you are and where these anxieties are coming from, Right. You know, you, you know, uh, and and then you also understand that what you're trading your time for, right? So time's the only currency in the world, right? So we're trading our time right now for something. We're all hoping to get something out of this conversation. Um, You know, you can then set your priorities right and you can can set your your mental framing and, and your personal plan in a way that creates these safety zones for you. And that goes to back to your your content strategy, your mental health, your emotional health, and the strategy you have to build your own personal content and capabilities. So, Marcus, you weren't afraid of hiring somebody better than you because you weren't afraid about getting the next job, right? If you were terrified that, you know, you were going to get fired in three years or somebody was going to discover that this guy Bryce working for you was way smarter than you, you never hired Bryce, right? So... You know, building that roadmap, that personal success roadmap, that personal content roadmap, and then being very, very kind of aware of like where you are. Why do you feel the way you feel? Why are you doing what you're doing? Um, is really, really powerful. And using, using examples, you know, this, this young guy who was the, we talked about in the first session, who's like a rising star and he was putting this job. You know, part of his issue when he was feeling all of his anxieties, he didn't have that plan. He didn't know where he was going. Right. You know, they just they put him in this job and it's like, yeah, here you are. We love you a lot. And here's this here's this big job. And Norton 360 is trying to block something here. Here's this big job and um, go. And then when the job blew up, he didn't there was no next thing.
2: because He was allowing himself to be ushered along. By someone else. Exactly. He's
0: just kind of moving along. So I spent a lot of time with him saying, Okay, well, let's let's first talk about what happened here. And now let's talk about who you are and what you want to achieve. And he's gonna he's gonna be way fine. You know, the kid's super smart and capable and he'll be good. But I, I think that so much of especially young leaders is like the race to the next job, the <laughs> the fear of failure, the you know you know, I, I've moved to a corner cube. Now I've moved to an office. Now I've moved to a, you right. know that whole thing um, right. that they get obsessed on. On that instead of like really kind of building their own personal content plan and their own strategy for growth and
2: and they don't enjoy the ride either, do they? They're so focused. Um, you said I love that looking for the next promotion. Enjoy yeah. the ride. Get in the role. Enjoy the role. Enjoy that that power of being the leader because the power you have to manage people to support people to engage people to make a difference in their lives I think it's one of the most fortuitous things that you can ever bestow upon anybody to empower them with that capability and if you don't enjoy that and if you're so busy looking up at the next rung rather than around and down and left and right of you to help those individuals then you're not going to help yourself and that's where that extra pressure that affects the health that you were talking about comes from I think.
0: No, and I think it's. I mean, I I personally experienced that when I was young in my career, I was sprinting, right? I'm like, you know, you know, I'm in achievement mode, and 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 it was all about what what was not all, but you know, largely like what's the title and what's the job and are you going to get out the next yeah. opportunity. And um, uh, I, I remember at one point, it's actually when I went to Best Buy. Um, I remember I, at one point I. You know, you look back and you're like, I in, I've been in all these cities and I've never seen them. So I literally it's made a travesty, plan. I've been to all these places and I've never yeah. seen them. And I was on my way to Washington, uh, D.C. for uh, actually one of the early Best Buy meetings. And I said, I'm going to stay downtown in a really nice hotel. And I'm going to stay a couple of days over the weekend. And I'm going to walk around. Not that I hadn't seen Washington, but I hadn't seen it this way. Um, and I'm going to be on purpose, as they say in Minnesota. I'm going to be on purpose about seeing this city, experiencing this. You know, and, and when I was at Sony, I, I'll I'll bet you I went to Japan twenty times before I spent a weekend and walked around. And it's like you know, but what are you the aspect? What are you, yeah, yeah. You know, what are you doing? What are you doing here? So what's the matter with you? you? know, here you're in one of the most amazing cities in the world. And you never saw it, but you've been there twenty times.
3: Right. And 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 here's the thing: how much of Sony's secret sauce? How much of what makes Sony such a great company is rooted in Japanese culture and Japanese mindset and Japanese ways of looking at the world?
0: Yeah, huge. Absolutely huge.
3: And if you're not experiencing that, you're not really getting Sony.
0: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's exactly right. And, you know, you can't. You can't learn without experiencing. You can't learn how to swim by reading in a book. (laughs) You have to jump into the damn pool
3: and, and swim. I mean, Sony is a, is a, is a company that has such a great origin story. I think I, I'm trying to. Remember. What I, I, I'm having a mental block here. Who is the founder of Sony?
0: Akio Morita. Akio, and- Akio Morita.
3: Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I heard an interview many years ago with Morita-san, and he was asked, you know, how did Sony begin? And he told an amazing story about he was on vacation or on a business trip in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and he was meeting with a, an, a, I don't remember what he was doing at the time. But he was meeting with an American business. It was a business trip. So he was having a business lunch in Hawaii. Yeah. And they were sitting poolside. You probably know this story. And the guy he was meeting pulled the the umbrella out of his cocktail, his tropical cocktail. And he said, oh, look, made in Japan. Yeah. And Marita-san said he felt so humiliated in that moment. Yeah. Because he felt like what the guy was saying is, this is what your country produces. That's right. Little bamboo paper umbrellas. And he said he was determined right then and there that they were going to do something that was really going to be amazing to leverage the knowledge, the wisdom, the manufacturing expertise that they had.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that company really is the, there's so many, so many great stories about what built them. But at the end of the day, it was engineers that had courage to try different things and in the, some of the great stories about you know Marita going to Budokan and listening to, I think it was Bruce Springsteen at Budokan and saying, how do I get this into my head? Like, I, I want to I hear this on the train and in, in the car mm-hmm. um, uh, and going, going to one of his engineers and giving him a, a block of wood and saying, I want you to build a cassette player that's this big that doesn't have a record button and doesn't have a speaker. And you're going to wear these things on your head, these headphones, and, you know, and headphones were used for like, you know, air, air traffic control in the military <laughs> yeah. back then for music. And, uh, and I remember, uh, talking to Takashino-san and who was one of the, one of the real inventors of the Walkman. And early on, he said when they were developing the Walkman, their biggest concern was how were they going to get rid of these things without Marita finding out that they dumped them in Tokyo Bay because nobody was going to buy a cassette player that didn't record and didn't have a speaker. And, and you know, Marita's vision, along with the engineers, and, and he said, you know, I want it to be this big. And they kept bringing him a, a, a big cassette player. He's like, no, it's got to fit in the shirt pocket. If it doesn't fit in the shirt pocket, then, then it's not going to work. Any, I mean, he changed how people muse, consume music to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, that that had that yeah. kind of impact. There's another great yeah. story about Marita innovating and very early on, you know, one of their first hit products was the transistor radio, and uh, it was, mm-hmm. you know, the transistor radios that people had in the 60s. And he came to New York to sell it. He went to visit Macy's. There's two funny parts about the story. One was. It actually didn't fit in a shirt pocket. So he had special shirts made with a larger pocket. <laughs> <laughs> That's what innovation looks like, folks. He had the transistor yep. radio in his pocket. And he went to, he went to visit Macy's. And um, and he, uh, um, he, he made the pitch. And they loved the product. And they said, there's one thing you have to do. It has to say Macy's on it. It can't say sewing. And he went back to the... I guess he was staying at the YMCA or something. He went back to the Y and thought about it. And he went back to him and he said, No, I I can't do it. And I won't have a company. And that was, you know, because back in the day, everything in to your part of your earlier point, Japan was like an OEM provider. It's like people, you yeah. so make this and I'm going to put my name on it. And, you know, your, label your, name, your name doesn't mean anything. Right. And he said, right. No, I have to build a brand. And that was one of their first hit products. And that's, you know, when he, when he drew that line in the sand, he said, we're not an OEM maker. That's Correct. not what we do. We're a brand. Um, and that was a very powerful uh, decision. And to this day, that's how they, you know, it's, it's about the brand and it's about driving truly innovative that's, products. That's a question three
2: moment for us, isn't it, Bryce? What are we choosing not to do and the difference that makes? So nice. we,
0: we
3: have a tool we call six strategic questions. And question number three is, is if, you, if you choose to do this, what are you choosing not to do? Yeah. And it, there's two parts to it. Half of it, part of it is a simple time value of money question of priorities. Yep. You know, you have limited time, limited personnel, limited resources. You deploy them on this. What are you not deploy them? But the more important part is about that, <laughs> is what, what are you choosing not to do? And in that case, the choice is really clear. He was choosing not to be an OEM. Yeah. He was choosing to build a brand. And they're yeah. mutually exclusive, and you can't do both.
2: Yep. And this comes full circle back to your point, Ron, about values. Yep. You know, that, that's a real values college that. I am not going to sell my name to someone else and have a white label stuck over it. I am going to do this for my country, his vision. That little yep. umbrella was in the back of his mind as he was in that store that day, I'm sure. And yep. that's a real values. And that goes back to that whole point of leadership. For If you don't understand that value, the ethics, the morals that you're focusing on, how can you ever lead into the rest of The domains that we've been talking about, with the
0: power that you have to do, yeah, and I and I think it's that's the fundamental issue I think that faces a lot of these private equity transactions, right? So if you think about what a private equity company does, their product is buying and selling a company, right? You would argue underneath that their product is a financing product, but beyond that, at the higher level, they buy and sell companies, and and companies don't do that. And I think the biggest issue I ever had, I always had with private equity was I never had this emotional, this feeling that they were in any way emotionally connected to the businesses that they were invested in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe a minor exception with, with Brookstone where I think Adam Sutton at JW Childs was very emotionally invested in making Brookstone work, but you know, that's not the norm. That's the exception. The, the norm is they're emotionally invested right. in the financial structure and they have a fund and there's a, there's a cliff at the end of the fund and we got to get this thing out of the fund at some kind of hurdle rate by the end of it where the people that are in the business. And if you think about, you know, where we started this conversation around values and, 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 you know, kind of who you are when you're working in a company and, and your product is, is this thing, you fall in love with that thing and you're passionate about bringing that thing to market and everything you do is about building that, the credibility, the greatness in that product or the experience, or whatever it is. And your owner doesn't believe that thing's important. You have a real untenable disconnect. And um, there's a statistic that 58% of CEOs don't survive the first two years of a private equity transaction. Yeah. Yep. me, I didn't spot, right? It, you know, and, and, it's, and it's because there's, the, I think there's this, this dissonance between the, the objective of a real business leader is to create a forever company. You know, corporations are yeah, yeah, they're they're living entities with no defined lifespan.
3: I love that. That's a great aim. That is a really great aim.
0: Creating a forever company is and Rita and I talk about this all the time. This is and we've turned down customers that it's not their attitude. It's like, no, we're not doing we're not doing that project. Our, we want to be involved with people that are and companies yeah. that are that their horizon is forever. Mm-hmm. and that's not what private equity does. Now they're, yeah. their horizon as a company is forever, but their product is flipping these companies and, it, yeah. and, and in many many, many cases in the process of doing that, they damage the, the very thing that makes these companies great. Wow. And I think I think so much of that comes from this, like, there just is this massive disconnect between what a company does and what this type of owner does, as opposed to, like, a Dick Schultz, for example, who was the founder right. of Best Buy and, and still is probably their principal shareholder. And he will never sell his company, yeah, ever. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how good it gets, he's not selling. You know, he's in it forever and that's just not you know that's not the behavior of private equity it's not what they do and i think that
3: henry ford said it's a very poor business that exists only to
0: make money yeah exactly i mean well and that's probably a good philosophy for ford because (laughs) they've had these (laughs) 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 prophetic than but uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, but I, would, I would agree with that. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, you know, Apple's a great example of that. Where you, right. you know, with right. Steve, I mean, so, many, so much has been said about the Apple, and I'm a huge Steve fan, and, and I had the privilege of working with him and meeting him when I was at Best Buy and other places. But he, you know, when he left, that company died. Right. You know when you know, classical management came in there that wasn't completely obsessed with this thing. Mm-hmm. And then when he came back, it absolutely came to life. And, you know, I was, when we were at, you know, during that period in the in the kind of the mid to late 90s where Apple was in such trouble, Sony was thinking about the PC business. You probably know this story, guys, where one of the thought processes, well, do we buy Apple for a couple billion dollars and we're in the computer business or do we do Microsoft Windows? And, mm-hmm. and thank they made the wrong decision and, <laughs> yeah. honest, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Which, and well, but they would have destroyed it. There's no way Apple would have. Yeah. it's just saying, like, No way, it wouldn't have happened,
3: right? This is this is you, you get here, Ron, to what I think the real point of leadership is. Real point of leadership is being the custodian of that vision, having that vision, articulating that vision of giving people a reason to come to work, a mission, a goal. And then keeping them focused on that. And and, it, and if you don't have that, then what's the point?
0: And yeah, what's the point? Yeah, I'm just working. Yeah, yeah i much rather go fly a the, the point is you're just working for a paycheck. And, and the most miserable experiences I've ever had in my life is when you got to that point, you're like, oh, I'm just getting paid. And the, and it's just a horrible, horrible place to be. And you know, multiply at times... Thousands in a, in a company that has lost its way, or uh, leadership has no, has no clear, articulated objective or vision.
2: Yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. why we're seeing Gartner reports, aren't we, showing that engagement again is on the downturn? It's dropping and yeah. dropping because exactly what we're talking about people aren't inspired, people aren't going to work feeling purpose, feeling challenged
0: mm-hmm.
2: because they're not seeing that and sensing that from the top and the leaders above them either.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, You've given us lots of advice on how to come and stay a good and effective leader, servant leader, a leader who adds real value. Really appreciate you taking the time to share these ideas with us and with our listeners and viewers, Ron. It's well, thank years. you. It's really been That's my fun.
0: pleasure and privilege spending some time with you guys. Bryce, I've, I've read at least one of your book at least six, six times. <laughs> really <laughs> appreciate it. Um, It's an honor to meet both of you. It does uh,
3: help you get to sleep at night. (laughs) More (laughs) than that. Thank you. Thank you. All right.
1: Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.